Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn there if you would. Matthew 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Beginning in verse 1, the Holy Scriptures read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we just ask that you would be our teacher. Lord, stir these broken hearts. Father, I pray through the preaching of your word that your name would be glorified. I pray that my words would be your words as revealed in your holy scripture. And so, Father, I just pray that you would remove distractions from our life, not just for this short period this morning, but throughout the week as we live for your name. Help us to be changed by the beauty of Jesus in this text. Help us to see it, even if just a glimmer, for even just a glimmer is enough to powerfully change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to bad kings, there's no shortage of them in all of human history. From bad King John, who got portrayed in Disney's Robin Hood as the cowardly, thumb-sucking lion. Some of you know what I'm talking about to the evil Caligula, to, and get this for a title, Useless Mary, the Queen of Scots. History is chock full of bad leaders, bad and terrible kings and queens. From homicidal rulers like Nero or Genghis Khan to the incompetent kings 
like Edward II, to untrustworthy kings like Charles I, or as we saw recently in a sermon, King Louis XVI of France. That's how you got to say it, France. I can't do the role. There's no shortage, though, in the line of kings in human history of royal stinkers who were just flat out awful. They stunk at ruling. They were terrible at it. Which is largely, if you look at most nations today, do you see monarchies anymore? No, we've gotten rid of most of them because they're just awful. However, even though we have pretty much completely done away with monarchies, if the 20th century proves anything, it proves just how much that didn't work. How so? Uh, Because we inevitably turn people into kings and queens, don't we? Think about the 20th century. Who did Germany look to to come in and bring the German nation back to prominence and success? Who was it? Hitler. And what happened? What did he do with his power? Did he bring them to success? No. He slaughtered millions and brought them to shame and ruin. How about another leader during this time period? Uh, Who did the people of Italy trust in? Mussolini. What did he do? Was he any better? No, he killed millions. He was awful. Well, what about Russia? How did they fare in this time? Stalin, not any better. He also killed millions. The point here we're making is the history of human kings is absolutely abysmal. It's awful. And yet, we humans can't seem to help ourselves, can we? No, we can't. And I was thinking about this. The reason for that is because within all of us, there is a longing, an innate desire, we might say, within each of us for a king who will return, who will come and set things right again. In fact, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, we see this, well, let's back up. We see this all throughout human uh, fiction, fantasy fiction. In the Lord of the Rings, who do they look to? Aragorn. They look to him to come and defeat uh, Sauron and prevent the destruction of, and chaos that he was threatening to bring. In the Chronicles of Narnia, they look to Aslan. And in King Arthur, spoiler alert, who they look to? King Arthur. If any of those were spoiled for you, it's, uh, the ship sailed on that. It's too late. You should have read it. But if you think about this, isn't it odd with how bad kings and queens are throughout human history, and yet our stories that we tell They're full of good kings, good rulers, good queens who come along and make everything right again. They're full of good kings who ride in powerfully upon the white horse to save the day. So where does this idea come from? Is this just a pipe dream? Like, why is this always showing up in our fiction? It's not because of human history. As we just saw, human kings and rulers aren't just bad. They're abysmally bad. They're flat out awful. And we see this throughout history from the European monarchs. And if you want to read about more bad kings, I would suggest you read the Old Testament. It's full of just awful kings. The history of monarchies is a dark history with example after example of kings who use their power not for good, but for great evil. And yet we can't help ourselves, can we? We can't seem to shake this idea of a coming king who will come and put everything right again. Because we know this world is messed up. We know this is not how things were supposed to be. When we see evil kings and rulers, we look at that and we say, "Mm -mm, that's not right. And yet where does this notion of right, this notion of what a good king is come from? 
Well, I think it comes from, I think it goes all the way back to creation, actually. In fact, the Bible tells us there is such a king. And in our passage this morning, we see that king, which is none other than King Jesus. However, though he is the king that our hearts long for, uh, as our passage shows us, he is a king who is nothing like what we ever expected. Yeah, he's powerful. Yes, he's mighty. Yes, he's wise. However, this king's power and the way he uses it is completely unique from the rest of the kings. And so if he is going to be our king, if Jesus is our king, we have to embrace his unique power because it's absolutely unique. And we embrace his unique power by embracing three things, and here they are. To accept Jesus as king, we must embrace the power of his meekness, his majesty, and finally, third, his might. In ancient times, when a mighty king would ride victoriously into a city to public fanfare, how did they often do it? White war horse, right? They were flexing their power. And so this is ironic because here comes King Jesus doing the exact opposite as he enters Jerusalem, which is the city of the kings. That's what they called Jerusalem, the city of the kings. He enters not on a powerful war horse, but how? On a colt a small donkey, something that was more suitable for children or even hobbits, right? This is not made for big, strong, mighty kings. It was a humbling way to enter the city. This would be like the toughest biker you can imagine showing up at the Sturgis motorcycle rally riding on a moped instead of a Harley. It's ridiculous. Like, what what are you doing? (laughs) And yet here's King Jesus, the absolute sovereign Lord of the universe, showing up in the most humblest of ways, showing up meekly upon a donkey. Why does he do this? What's, what's the purpose of this? Well, I think there's a few reasons why he does this. And one of the reasons comes right out of verse 5. Look at Matthew 21, verse 5, if you have your Bibles. This is an Old Testament prophecy. Which Old Testament prophecy? Well, it comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And here's what it says. Rejoice! Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Before Christ came, people studied this passage in Zechariah and it threw them for a loop. They weren't sure how to, like, what to make of this they couldn't figure out why the Messiah, who, would come, who was powerful, like we have Old Testament prophecies that tell us just how powerful Jesus would be, and yet we have passages like this that show this great, mighty, powerful king coming in the most humble of ways. And so people have studied this, and they've, they've been thrown for a loop for it, trying to figure it out. And we don't want to be thrown for a loop by it, do we? And so that means we need to ask and answer the right questions. And that question is, why would Christ do this? Well, yes, as we just mentioned, a part of that is certainly to fulfill prophecy. But think about it. Why is this prophecy even there in the first place? Why did Jesus need to come in meekness and humility? Several reasons. One of the main reasons, though, if you think about this, this was absolutely necessary if he was going to be the coming king who would powerfully save us. He had to come in this way or else he would not have been able to do that. Because if he had come on a white war horse dressed for battle, every single one of us would be without hope. Every single one of us would be doomed to destruction. 
And yet that's precisely what the people wanted Jesus to do, isn't it? They wanted him to show up on the white war horse to throw off their Roman chains and return Israel to be the head of the nations, to return Israel to the glory of the Davidic kingdom. But do you see now that if Jesus had done that, if he had powerfully shown up in the way that people thought he should have, they would have been toast. And so instead, Jesus came in humility because that is what was necessary for us to avoid the coming tidal wave of God's wrath. Because that wave is coming. God is coming and his wrath is coming and it is set against sinners. But to save us from that, Jesus came in humility, in meekness, not as a conquering Davidic king who waged war on the battlefield against Rome, but as a conquering king over sin who waged war upon the battlefield of the cross. And that required meekness. Now, in our passage this morning, the reason Jesus and the crowds are heading to Jerusalem to celebrate is what holiday was coming up for them? Passover. Passover. What was Passover? Well, you have to go back to Exodus, to the Old Testament. What happened there? Well, when Israel was in bondage, when they were in slavery, God came along and he was their deliverer. And before they finally left Egypt, they had an evening where God said, listen, here's what's going to happen. My angel is going to come and slay every firstborn in every household. And that includes you too. Not just the Egyptian households, but the Jewish households. But I will pass over that household if you do one thing. Slay a lamb and take its blood and put it over the doorpost of your, of your house. For if you do that, then you will be spared. And so every year the people would come and they would celebrate God's passing over them in Passover. And then they would remind themselves of what had to happen. And what would they do? They would slay another sheep and have a sacrifice as a reminder of this cost to have God pass over their sin. Because the thing is, if you think about it, were the Jewish people any less sinful than the Egyptian people? No, they weren't. And so every year when they celebrated Passover, what would happen is they would come to Jerusalem and they would enter the city of the kings. And when this happened, thousands and thousands of sheep would be herded into the city for slaughtering for a sacrifice of this Passover remembrance. And interestingly enough, the gate that they passed through became known, they called it, literally called it this, it was the sheep gate. Because all the sheep, that was the gates that they went through. And that was the gate they passed through in order to serve as a blood sacrifice. And interestingly enough, Jesus, as he comes, the Galilean comes to Jerusalem, what gate do you think he passed through? The sheep gate. That's what scholars will tell you. He passed through, most likely, this sheep gate. And Why? Because as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He is the ultimate and perfect final sacrifice. All of those other sheep were but a picture of the Lamb of God who is Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who comes to serve as our sacrifice to take away the wrath of God from us. And so with this context in mind, we look to Matthew chapter 21, and what do we see happening here as Jesus enters the city? It's a king's coronation. That's what this is. This is his coronation where he publicly pronounces himself as the messianic king, the son of David, which as we've seen several times throughout Matthew's gospel is a messianic title. And so as he enters, palm branches are waved, hosannas are shouted, praise and acclamation is given. And yet within one week, 
what are the people shouting? Crucify him. Crucify him. And why? Was it because things went terribly wrong for Jesus, the messianic king? No. It's because things went terribly right. For Jesus came not as a conquering king, but as a servant king who came to humbly serve and die for us as our perfect and final sacrifice. If we accomplish even just one thing today, it would be this, that we would walk away seeing the great power of Christ's meekness. I can think of two ways that we see this. First, we see the power of Christ's meekness as seen in his humility in the face of great power. And secondly, humility faced in the face of great hatred. Let's look at that first one. Jesus is the absolute sovereign Lord of the universe who has all powerful, all might, and all authority. The Bible's crystal clear on this. He spoke the universe into existence with his words. And Colossians says, he upholds even the molecules in your body. They stay together by the power of his might. That is a powerful king, is it not? Very powerful king. And yet, look at how he is. Look at how he interacts with people. Look how he enters a city with meekness and humility. You ever heard the expression, ultimate power corrupts absolutely? Okay, two of you have. Awesome. All right. It does. That's why it's an expression. Ultimate power corrupts absolutely. And the reason is no prince among us can wield even measly human power and not have it corrupt and destroy them. Think about the power of sovereign God who, as we just said a second ago, upholds the universe by the power of his might. And then think of the strongest human king that you can imagine. What's that scale look like? Is it close? No, not even close at all. And yet Jesus wields that power and it doesn't corrupt and destroy him. Think about King David. He was a man after God's own heart. How did he handle that power? Not very well at times, right? He became an adulterating murderer who killed his best friend, one of his closest friends, for his friend's wife. Not a good look. But yet in Christ, the son of David, the true David, we find a king who wields a power that is so much greater than any human power, and it doesn't corrupt him. Understand how impressive this is. It's incredibly impressive. In the face of great power, he remains meek and humble. Do you understand what kind of power you need to be able to do that? Probably not, because none of us can come even close to it. We're not powerful enough. The second way that we see Christ's meekness in his power, we see it by the humility. We see the power of Christ's meekness in the humility in the face of great hatred. Think about what he faced. They beat him. They slapped him. They insulted him. They slandered him, mocked him, scourged him, and ultimately, in the end, crucified him. And yet, what did he do? Isaiah 53 tells us about what this suffering servant would do. And in verse 7, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That is remarkable power. That is remarkable meekness. See, it's easier to be meek when you don't have any power at all. But when you have absolute power like King Jesus does, that's a whole different thing. And yet, with great power, he was incredibly meek. Most of us don't even have the power to bite our tongues when we are just slighted even a tiny bit. Like, we're ready to roll. You cut me off in traffic. I'm going to show you. You know what I mean? That's how we get. 
Like we lose it sometimes over the most trivial and silliest of things. And yet what does Jesus do? He's slapped. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's scourged. And ultimately he's crucified. And in the face of that, he opened not his mouth, did he? You imagine what kind of self-control you would need to do that? Church, this is nothing like the kings that we're used to. This is a suffering king who came not to conquer, rule, and reign, but to suffer, serve, and die for the people whom he loved. And yet the kings we're used to couldn't be any more different. For in this king, we find, as one song elegantly puts it, we find meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, the Lord of eternity who dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Christ washes our feet. He is the servant, the great king leader who serves us. And so what beauty, what majesty. And when you come to see the beautiful power of his meekness, do you know what it's going to do to you? It's going to change you. It's going to change your heart of stone to a heart of flesh that allows you to sing the chorus of this song, which says, oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Is that the cry of your heart? Do you long to be with the people of God each and every week, each and every Sunday, to worship our great king who gloriously laid down his life in order to save us? I hope so. I really do hope that it is. This leads us to our second point. To accept Jesus as king, we must embrace first the power of his meekness, and secondly, the power of his majesty. Now, there's been about a billion pages written trying to work out how the crowds went from just Monday, basically chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to a few days later chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Some people will tell you, well, this must have been different crowds with the Galilean pilgrims chanting the praise that we see on Monday and the Jerusalem crowds being the ones chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Either way, you can work that out yourself, but without a doubt, there are certainly some here who saw the majesty of Jesus, even though it was veiled in meekness. Which is why, in fulfillment of several Old Testament passages, they shout praises to King Jesus, because that is always the right response of somebody who sees the beauty of meek and powerful King Jesus. And if you notice down in verse 15, we read what the children cry out. What do they say? They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, I want to talk about this word Hosanna for just a minute before we move on here. But what does Hosanna mean? Have you ever thought about that? What does Hosanna mean? Okay, let's back up. What does hallelujah mean? It's a a word of praise, right? And so the way I thought about this, I always thought, oh, that Hosanna is just another synonym for that, right? It's just, you know, hallelujah, Hosanna. No, they all start with H. They mean the same thing. No, they don't. This word Hosanna, yes, it's a declaration of praise, but what it really is, it's a plea for salvation. The root of this Hebrew word comes from Psalm 118.25, which says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So what this literally means is we ask you, we beg you to powerfully save us, to deliver us. And yet, as we've been discussing, that is precisely what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to conquer us, though he could have. He didn't come to destroy us, though if he had done so, he would be perfectly just and right in destroying the rebel sinners who stood against his rule and reign. 
He came instead, though, to seek and save the lost, and he did so by coming in weakness in order to die upon a cross. And so in Christ, we find majesty in meekness as he comes uh, charging straight ahead into the lion's dead, the lion's den to be devoured in order to save us. Unlike Daniel, though, the mouth of those lions didn't stay shut, did they? No, he was devoured because that was what was necessary to save us. And so when you see even a glimpse of this kind of majesty, how can we not praise him? How can we not shout Hosanna? How can we not shout hallelujah to his glorious name? In fact, his majesty is so majestic that in Luke's account, when the Pharisees come up to him, they're like, whoa, what's going on? You got to shut this down. What does Jesus say to them there? He says, if they don't cry out in praise and adoration, then even the stones would cry out. That's how great Christ's majesty is. And so if the stones could not help themselves from praising his, maj- his majestic name, then what's our excuse? The redeemed people of God, what's our excuse for not praising his name and, sh- and pouring adoration upon him? Because that's the right response to the messianic king. Do you realize that worship is our highest calling? It's what we're going to do for all of eternity. It's our highest calling, which is why this, this act of worship is not just a duty, but it's a delight. It's something that we find our ultimate fulfillment in. So how about you? Is worship the center of your joy and satisfaction? When you see even just glimmers of Christ's majesty, does it move you to joyous and rapturous worship? Because it should. When you reflect upon Christ's love for us, how can it not? When you see the beauty of his majesty, how he was willing to go to such great lengths in order to save us, how can our hearts not be moved with appreciation, with wonder, and with joy? See, when it comes to leading worship, I don't need to get up here and try to pump everybody up. All I need to try to do is hold up the name of Jesus, and the rest is going to follow naturally. That's how you have an energetic and live worship service, not with a band, not with drums. Not, I mean, those are great things to have, but it comes out of holding up the glory of Jesus and the people seeing the majesty of his great name. Well, I just, you know, I just don't like to sing, preacher. It's just not really my thing. That's great for the worship team and all. You know, I'm not really on key, you know, and it's just not really my style, you know. Well, respectfully, I strongly disagree. Because the truth is, if that's you, then I'm going to argue that it's not an issue of not enjoying worship. It's an issue of not enjoying Christ, of not delighting in Christ. Because here's the thing. The truth is, we all worship what we delight in, don't we? I mean, think about your favorite hobbies. Like, if you get that brand new motorcycle, if you get that brand new boat, are you quiet about it? No, you're telling everybody because you're excited about it. You're delighting in it. It's really a form of worship. So the, the question is not, will I worship? But the question is, what will I worship? And there's a million things that you can worship. I said last Sunday that the most important thing that you will do all week is what? What we're doing right now. This is the pinnacle the ultimate calling of every Christian, not worshiping in your car alone on Monday. That's great. Do that. It's coming together as the redeemed people of God and beholding Christ's majesty in his glory and shouting Hosanna, shouting hallelujah, praise his blessed name. It's the greatest calling. 
And so every week we come together with the redeemed saints of God to shout Hosanna and hallelujah to his majestic name. And yet so often we don't view it that way, do we? Why not? Because for some, we're caught up with the majesty of lesser things, aren't we? With the majesty of our careers, of our jobs, which keep us too busy from coming together and doing the greatest calling, which is what we're doing right now. For some of us, we worship the majesty of our relationships, whether that be our spouse, our friends, our family, or even our children. That is our ultimate joy and satisfaction. Some of us worship the majesty of our hobbies. And you get the point here, right? I don't need to keep going with illustrations. There's a billion different things that you can fill in that in your life that takes the seat, the center of your heart that you center your life upon and you worship. And here's the scary thing is even as the redeemed people of God, we can fall back into that, can't we? Absolutely we can. And so it's a battle. There's a million, billion different things that we can worship. And when that happens, what we are doing is we are forgetting that the worship of King Jesus is our highest calling and whatever delight we get out of worshiping these lesser things, career, family, hobbies, whatever, it doesn't even scratch the surface for the delight that we can have, the rapturous joy that we can attain when we worship our glorious Savior. When we forget this, it results in dull and lifeless worship. Worship that is a duty where we check the box, not a delight that we look forward to every single week. So how about you? Do you long for the, every single Sunday when you can come together and worship the name of Jesus with your brothers and sisters in Christ? See, I don't have to get up here and, and you know, bash church attendance all this stuff. I just have to say, hey, are you loving Jesus? Are you worshiping him? That's really what this comes down to. Are you worshiping Christ? Is he the center of your joy and delight? And yet so often he's not. And how sad that is. Because before us we have the eternal king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, who is absolutely worthy of our praise and adoration. And so worship him. Delight in him. Prepare your hearts for every single Sunday when you come together to shout Hosanna, hallelujah, to his glorious name, for he is worthy. Right now we get but glimpses of his majesty, which is often more than we can even handle. And yet we take hope in knowing that the small glimpses of majesty that we see right now is but a fraction of the total majesty and glory that we're gonna see in eternity. It's gonna be not even close to comparison. And when that happens, oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I love Isaiah chapter 55 because in that chapter, it tells us what that day is going to be like. It says that when we behold the unveiled majesty, the glory of our king, it tells us that on that day, even the trees will sing and clap their hands. Is that a metaphor? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. We're going to find out. But if that's what the trees are going to do, can you imagine what it's going to be like for you and I when we see his unveiled glory? I think it was Edwards. He talked about what this is going to be like. He says, right now we have how many senses? Anybody know? Five Five senses. What if we have about 5,000 in eternity? 5,000 senses to worship, to appreciate, to experience the glory of our risen king. Are you longing for that day? Are you ready for that day? 
If not, then it might be because you have never truly come to embrace the power of his meekness nor his majesty. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you haven't come to embrace the power of his might, which leads us to our third point. To accept Jesus as king, we must embrace the power of his meekness, his majesty, and finally his might. After entering the city of Jerusalem, to the praise of the crowds, Jesus shows us some of this might, doesn't he? How? Mark tells us that Jesus enters the temple, and what does he do? He looks around. He sees the sad state of worshiplessness affairs. That ah, works. Of worshipless affairs. I don't know. Pick, pick your poison there. I don't know which word we're going to go with. Worshiplessness going on, the corruption, the the greed. And what does he do? Does he immediately start flipping over tables? No. He goes home for the night, sleeps on it, and then comes back, fashions the whip, and goes to work. That is power under control. See, if it was me and I saw that, what would I do? How would we expect this story to go? See it? Boom. Response. Anger. But how does our God respond to sin? Is he quick to wrath? No, he's slow to wrath, and this shows this. And he's slow to wrath because he has power under control. He sleeps on it first, and then the next day he shows up and he drives them out. And then what does he do? He shows more of his might. How? By healing all of the blind and lame who come to him, Matthew says. And that powerfully shows what kind of might we're talking about. How so? Before I answer that, I need to give us a little bit of a brief explanation of what this temple looked like, how it was set up. First off, this temple was massive, and that's not an exaggeration. We're talking 35 football fields in size. I can't even fathom how big that is. That's huge. I, I played on one football field. That was big enough. Okay, this is 35 football fields. We're talking huge. And within this massively huge rectangular shaped temple, they had different sections in it. In fact, they had four, or we could call them courtyards in this temple. See, you had the court of the Gentiles that anyone was allowed to enter. You had the court of the women, which only clean and Jewish, which only clean Jewish men and women could enter, because if they were sacrificially, ceremonially unclean, they were not allowed to come in. And then they had the court of Israel where only the clean Jewish men could enter. And then finally, they had the court of the priests where only the Jewish priests were allowed to enter. And where was it where Jesus set up shop and did his healing and teaching here? In the very center where the priest, because he is the great high priest, right? Wouldn't that make sense? No. I mean, it would, but he set up in the court of the, of the Gentiles. He was in the court of the Gentiles when he turned over the tables and drove out the money changers, and also when he began to heal the lame and the blind. And that dramatically shows God's power to save in a remarkable way. How so? Well, first off, if you think about this, in the court of the Gentiles here, not only did you have people who were considered unclean. Remember what the Jewish people called Gentiles back then? Dogs, pigs, right? Ceremonially unclean. They were worthless in their eyes. And yet were they worthless in the eyes of Jesus? No, which is why he set up shop there. Who else would be considered unclean? the blind and the lame. That's how David talks about that. They were absolutely considered unclean. 
And if you read Leviticus, it also tells about how all sorts of different people were, were unclean before God. And yet here is Yahweh God coming to the unclean to do what? To make them clean. Not because they did some great works of righteousness, no, but because he is righteous and gracious and loving and kind. And so he makes the unclean clean, not just by healing the blind and the lame, the blind and the lame, not just by entering the courts of the Gentiles, allowing them to come close to God, whereas before they were in the fourth court, way separated from him, but ultimately by answering the cries of the infant children, of the little kids, which was what? Hosanna, which as we just said, means God save us. Christ did so, how? By refusing to save himself as he died upon a cross. How many legions of angels could Christ have called down in the blink of an eye if he had wanted to? And yet he didn't. He could have stopped his death at any point if it had been his desire. But his desire was to make the unclean clean, and that was necessary for that to happen. And verse 16 is what led him there. Look at verse 16. The religious leaders come to Jesus after healing, after hearing the little children's cry of Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. And what do they say? Do you hear what they're saying? You better shut this down, Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response to them? He quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, and he says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And right there, he's dead. His, his fate is sealed. Why? That's a claim of divinity is what that is. It's a claim of divinity. How so? Who is the only one, if you know the Ten Commandments, who is to be worshipped? God. That's it. You have no other gods before you. Only God is worthy of praise and adoration. And here's Jesus accepting praise and adoration. And when he's questioned on it, he doubles down on it by quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, saying, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And he's, what he's saying is, I can't make them be quiet. They're doing what is right. They're worshiping Yahweh God. And that right there is why he was dead. Dead man walking. Only Yahweh God is to be worshiped and praised, yet that is precisely who Jesus is. And because he is, because of this alone, his death has the power to mightily save us and answer our cries of Hosanna, Hosanna. So how about you? Have you cried out Hosanna to King Jesus? Have you embraced the power of his meekness? Have you embraced the power of his majesty? And have you embraced the power of his might, which alone is able to save us? If not, then you need to know something. Know that his meekness is not weakness. Don't mistake it for weakness. For though Christ came riding upon a lowly donkey about 2,000 years ago, he's coming soon, very soon, upon a powerful war horse to rule to conquer, and to reign. And when that day comes, and it's coming soon, it will be too late to swear fealty to him. In the book of Revelation, I want to close with what John writes describing this day. And he says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, 
And on his head are many diadems, which is crowns, which is why we just sang crown him with many crowns, many diadems. And he has on and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of his wrath, of God the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. On this day, it will be too late to embrace the power of Christ's meekness, too late to embrace the power of Christ's majesty, and too late to embrace the redeeming power of his might. Because on that day, there will only be judgment, judging power. And on that day, it will be too late to bend the knee and receive his pardon. But today is not yet that day, is it? It's not. For today, the king still rings forth the gospel message of salvation to all rebels, calling them to lay down their arms and embrace the Savior of the world. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is both the suffering servant and the conquering king. He is our Messiah, church. May we worship him. May we delight in him. And may we live and die for him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through the foolishness of preaching today that you might stir your people's hearts. I pray that we would be a worshiping church. That we would long for and delight, not just for each Sunday where we get to come together and see but a small glimpse of what we will be doing for all of eternity but that we would build our lives week in and week out, living for that moment where we will behold Christ face to face, where we will see his glory. We see his splendor unveiled. Help that to be the charge for our lives, the motivation for all we do. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.